God, help us to um, marvel at your holiness this morning. Help us to feel the weight of your glory in our lives. God, that this would be more than just a Sunday or some habit or some routine, but a sacred moment. God, that we can truly feel what it means to be in your presence, to be in the fellowship of believers, brothers and sisters, to be entrusted with stewarding this, this tradition of gathering together that's been around for thousands of years to come and remind one another this good news that we have in Jesus Christ. God, let all the things of the earth fade and help our eyes fixate on your Son to once again marvel at the holiness of the cross, the holiness of the empty tomb. God, that what we've sung this morning is an anticipation of eternity, a moment when every knee will bow and every tongue confess and all the creatures of the earth will cry out, holy, holy, holy. For that's exactly what you are, God, and we, we give you praise for it. We declare that we're not worthy. And we ask that your spirit would be with us now, that you would lead us as we seek once again a greater understanding of how to give our lives to you. And to bring you the glory that you so richly deserve. Father, we love you praise you. Be with us now, in spirit and in truth. In the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. Well, welcome to Promotion Sunday. It is a, a fun way to get the start of a school year kicked off and to kind of commemorate the end of the summer months. And obviously, as you've seen through the course of this morning, whether you were here at 9.30 or in our service, there's a lot happening in our church as we celebrate, in particular, these, these young children and the youth uh, moving into new grades. We see that they do that at school, and we also do that here at church, and, and that's a big part of what we want to celebrate today. And it's, and it's also an invitation to families and to adults alike to, to really invest in these children, in these youth in particular, when we gather together every Sunday at 9.30 in particular is when they get a chance to gather in those age-specific arenas. And that's a huge part to their spiritual formation. And as you heard Martha say earlier, like, come. Uh, we, we want to have the opportunity to invest in these children, to invest in these youth, and for adults as well. We've got a lot happening for you during that same time frame at 9.30 every Sunday uh, that we can really cultivate together this idea of what it means to follow Christ and the spiritual formation that takes place by gathering together in a community of a church. And, and so we, we want those touch points to be celebrated. We want them to be intentional. And they're not just confined uh, to Sunday. We do a lot of things Wednesday. In fact, there's a couple other things as we're nearing the end of the summer and anticipating the fall season uh, that I want to make you aware of just on Wednesdays in particular. The, the youth and the children have kind of gone through their own summer programming and scheduling, and that's going to continue this week. Uh, one thing noteworthy for adults this week, this Wednesday, that I want to extend an invitation to is our renewal ministry. We have a small group of ladies that have finished their year-long journey through the renewal material, and there's going to be a commencement this Wednesday, and we get a chance to hear testimonies and stories of what God has done and what He is doing. It is honestly one of my favorite things 
to hear and to be a part of. I just marvel at these stories. And so if that interests you, you come on Wednesday and hear what God is doing in the lives of these ladies and celebrate uh, their journey through this renewal ministry. That's this Wednesday. But going back to our children and our youth, I also want you to be mindful of Family Jam on August 23rd which is the Wednesday following that. And, and that's a great opportunity for families to gather and to hear everything that is being planned for this next year of how we intend to spiritually form children and youth. You'll hear from Martha and Jason of all the things that are upcoming. So we highly want to encourage you all to be a part of that. It should be a great night. And, and even if you don't have kids and you just want to know what's going on in the life of this church, come. If you want to help in those ministries, uh, come and hear about it and join us on the 23rd. Now, Moving beyond that on the 30th is when we'll really kind of start our fall curriculum in our youth and children's areas. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and so typically on Wednesday nights, we have renewal. We have things going on for children and youth. We have uh, a couple of D groups that meet. If you want to get connected to a D group, you can contact Caroline if you're interested in that on Wednesday. But we're also going to be starting something new on the 30th. And I just kind of want to put it in front of you as a reminder or at least a, an update there uh, for adults as well. That's going to be something we refer to as Theology Matters. And Theology Matters is something that we used to do uh, pre-COVID on Sunday nights in a much more focus and kind of extended time. This is going to be a slight variation of that where it's really going to be an extension of the Sunday message. And it's going to be an opportunity to go a little bit deeper in whatever we talk about on Sunday morning, uh, creating an atmosphere where there can be questions and dialogue and, and interaction over what we've been discussing as a church. And so that'll be something that we would love for you to participate in. The name captures the meaning, right? It's matters of theology. It's, it's subjects, elements of theology that we're going to be talking about, but it's also in, including the idea that it matters, that these are important discussions. And so that will be something that you can consider as we head into the fall semester as well on Wednesdays. Uh, but all of this, when we talk about Promotion Sunday, we talk about all these different touch points, be it Sunday morning or we talk about Wednesday night, all of this is a reminder, regardless of your age, that you never stop learning, right? Like you, you never stop learning, especially within the walk of following Jesus, because what we know ourselves as is disciples, right? That, that's kind of the moniker. That's the name. That's the label. And a disciple is a student of, right? It, it's somebody that mimics the act of a teacher. It's a pupil. It, it's this whole process of learning. And here's the reality. You never stop being a disciple, right? That's not something that you ever promote out of. You, you never graduate. You never retire from it. You, you never fully arrive. We are always learners regardless of our age. And, and so, so much of what we're talking about here is discipleship. And what does it mean for our church to pursue that? We have that phrase, we want to be disciples uh, of Christ who make disciples. So it's not just that it's who we are, but it's what we do. Christ has commissioned us to go and make disciples as well. And so these touch points on Sundays and Wednesdays and everything in between, all these different acts of service and things that we do are all designed to help us grow in this pursuit of learning or discipleship, where we know what it means to be a disciple who makes disciples. When we think about that here at this church, we tend to often refer to at least three different ingredients related to discipleship. And that would be community teaching and accountability, right? That we want you to create meaningful community with one another and with God. Uh, we want to be centered on God's word. We're a biblically guided church. We see it as the authority of our life. So the teaching that we get is from his word and that we wanna be held accountable accountable to the things that we're seeing in his word, but also accountable to this commission to go and make disciples. And so regardless of your touch point with the church, 
Our hope is that you're experiencing that to some degree, community teaching and accountability. There are three primary arenas that we often tend to emphasize where you find that uh, most thoughtfully and intentionally. One of those would be where we all are right now, Sunday morning worship, 1030. Right? There is an opportunity here to foster community, find teaching through the word, maintain some sense of accountability. So we want to encourage you to continue to participate with us in worship. Uh, Another arena is what we call Sunday morning enriched or even some of these touch points on Wednesday night where you have smaller expressions of community where you get a chance to meet other people, but it's intergenerational. It it changes from uh, every eight weeks where you get a chance to hear different subjects, different topics related to this vision. And so that's our enriched classes at 930. Uh, All these other things, we have this smaller expression of community teaching accountability. But all that is designed to funnel to kind of the main point of emphasis that we really see as being the heartbeat of our church, which is discipleship groups. Right, our, our D groups, and, and that's a huge part where it's a, a little bit more of an intimate setting. We tend to, to cap those off at 12, so it's usually somewhere between 6 to 12 people that gather together and, and they live life with one another in a very profound way, in a very meaningful way to experience community teaching and accountability. Uh, as, as part of my discipleship group, I can tell you I've been with these guys for several years, and every week that we gather, we, we come in and we share burdens. We, we celebrate joys. <clears throat> we talk about stresses of work. We talk about the challenges of parenting. We, we read the scriptures, whether it's 1 Corinthians or whether it's the gospel of John or something. The old, I mean, we're in the word together. We're sharing those things and we're encouraging one another, right? It's a loving accountability. And I can't tell you how life-giving that has been. It, just within the last couple of years, uh, several of us have lost loved ones. And the way that that group has supported one another when we've gone through those sorts of things and pointed us back to community, back to God's word, back towards this sort of encouragement. It's, it's life-giving. And so we want that for everyone. And so we're creating all these different touch points in the church that hopefully allows you to find that. And so today is a big point of emphasis for that as well. It's not just Promotion Sunday, but it's where we try to launch some of these new D groups and make this as a point of emphasis for you all to get connected. And so here's what we're doing today. We're feeding you. Right? So like literally everyone is invited to lunch today. We've got a group of men who volunteered to grill out hamburgers and hot dogs today. They've been working since I think 8.30 in the morning um, to get everything prepared and ready. We've got a whole kitchen staff over there right now. So at the conclusion of the service, uh, we're all going to eat. Amen, Davis, right? Davis is excited. I'm excited. So literally whole church, go. Like, this is an opportunity for you to meet people, inter- embrace the moment where you can be like, hey, I don't know you. Tell me your name. Tell me your story. And like, build that sense of community. So everyone's invited. Take advantage of that. But I also want to encourage you that if you are not yet a part of a D group and you want to know more and you're interested in it, we will have these QR codes spread out throughout Harris Hall that you can fill out. You can scan them with your device. Fill out some basic information about yourself and let us know what would interest you. Like what time uh, during the week works for you? What age group? Do you have children? Just some basic info and we'll help you get connected and go on that journey over the next couple of weeks so that we can get this year off to a good start. So engage in all these different things, all these different opportunities, and let's celebrate the start of a new fall semester together as a church, okay? Uh, With that being said, talking about getting things off to a good start, we're starting a new sermon series this morning. Can I get an amen? Right? We've been, we've been working through Romans for a while, and so we're going to start a new point of emphasis, and this is one that I've been really looking forward to. All, all the things that we've covered so far this year have all gone back to this primary theme of living courageously, 
right? And the idea has been that over the last few years, we've talked about what it means to fix our eyes on Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith, and that when we do that, he renews us, he restores us, he changes us uh, from within, and then that manifests itself with the way in which we engage the world around us. Uh, We can't help but live courageously once we've fixed our eyes on him, and he's changed us, he's renewed us. And so that's kind of the growth that we've We've been working through, and every sermon series that we've done so far this year is built on that idea. So we started the year uh, talking about prayer and, and how prayer is what fuels the courageous life. We talked about understanding God's plan as we walk through Romans 9 through 11, knowing that God is sovereign. He is in control, and we can find confidence in that and assurance in that. Uh, we asked a really important question for a stretch there, which is, what is truth? Right? In today's culture and world where it's increasingly difficult to know what is and isn't true, uh, we had a very in-depth conversation about that because the reality is, is that if you don't know what's true, then it's going to naturally create a posture that's somewhat timid, hesitant, unsure. It's not going to be very courageous. Or the flip side of that is that you're going to buy into maybe a lie or a deception or something that's false, and you're going to be courageous about the wrong things. And when you're courageous about the wrong things, that can be very destructive to you and to other people around you. And so it's very important for us to figure out what is truth. And we built that off of John's gospel and this exchange between Pilate and Jesus, where Jesus looks at Pilate and he says, the whole reason I was born, the reason I came into the world was to testify to that which is true. Everyone on the side of truth listens to my voice. And that Jesus is that lens. Through the summer, we finished up Romans 12 through 16, where we talked about practical ways to apply this, whether that was blessing those who persecute you, practicing hospitality, your response to governing authorities, how you handle disputable matters within the body over and over and over again. We talked about practical ways to live courageously. And all of that has been taken from this thematic verse that we established at the beginning of the year. I want you to turn to Joshua chapter one. This isn't our primary text today, but it is one that I wanna remind you of as we once again consider what does it mean to live courageously as we head into the fall semester. This is a a short verse that's a well-known verse and it's coming at a very uh, meaningful time in Joshua's life. Moses has died uh, and now God has asked Joshua to lead his people into the promised land. Imagine that responsibility. Imagine the weight of that, the significance of it, the, the sort of fear and trepidation that Joshua must have felt, and this is how the Lord encourages him. Chapter 1, verse 9. It says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Right? And so that's the idea, right? Is that we all can recognize this, though we may not have the same call and responsibility that Joshua has, God has called us to something. He's called us to live a certain way, and there are without doubt questions or moments in our life where we are overwhelmed with this idea of fear, trepidation, uncertainty. I guarantee you there are people out there today sitting in these pews that are going, I I feel discouraged. There are certain things that I'm fearful of. There are certain things that have worn me down. There are burdens that we're, we're carrying. And so what we want to have is God come alongside us and whisper into our hearts and say, have I not commanded you? Right? You don't have to live a life of fear and hesitancy trepidation. Don't be discouraged. Live a life that is strong. Live a life that is courageous. And where do you find that? Because you know that he is with you. How do we know that he's with us? 
There's a lot of ways to answer that, obviously, with Jesus being Emmanuel, God is with us. That's the primary way. But there are other ways which we can understand that, which is going to lead us into the point and focus for this upcoming sermon series. Uh, what we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks is our understanding of our, of our identity. Okay, now, identity is kind of a buzzword in some ways, depending on the context and the situations in which it's used. And so let me take some time to, to talk through this here at the front end. But the idea is that if you don't know who you are, then again, you're kind of instinctively going to be maybe a little timid, a little unsure, a little hesitant uh, about how to engage the world and the world uh, around you. And, and that lack of understanding who you are is going to make it difficult to live courageously. And so what I want to do today is really just introduce the subject of identity as a whole and, and then use that as a way to anticipate something that we're going to focus in on for the next several weeks. So this is just introductory. And so I really want to begin just with the concept of identity and, and how we shape it a lot in today's world. But then also we'll get to a text that will be towards the, really towards the end of the message. So don't get worried when, I'm, when I say, okay, now turn to the Bible. We've still We'll be wrapping up close at that point in time, all right? Um, but here, here is the point. When you think about identity, it really starts in a lot of different ways, but probably the most basic one is the fact that we all are aware of all these different forms of identification, right? I mean, like everyone has some form of ID. And, and when you actually get on government websites, you can add it up. They accept, I think, around 45 different forms of identification, some primary forms of identification, some secondary. So primary would be like your driver's license, your marriage license or certificate, uh, your birth certificate, things along those lines. Uh, where you get a lot in that group is several related to the military or immigration forms. And then you've got the secondary form of identification that could be like a pay stub, it could be your social security, things along those lines. But isn't it interesting that, that it's not enough for you to just go up and say, this is who I am, you have to prove it, right? You have to have an, a form of identity to prove who you, that's, that's actually kind of a, a pretty fascinating concept when you stop and think about it, that you have to prove who you are. Uh, in fact, this past spring, my wife uh, went through a stretch where she lost her driver's license, and driver's license, and she was gonna be participating on this field trip down to Austin with some students from the school that she worked at to go to the state capitol. And the state capitol is pretty strict on who they're going to let in. And you have to have a valid form of identification going to the capitol. So she didn't have one. So she went armed with all these different forms. She was like, I got my birth certificate. I got an old passport. I'm going to make sure they let me in. Isn't it interesting all the ways that we have to prove who we are? And what's interesting about that is that also, uh, because we have all these different forms, we actually live in a world where your identity can be stolen. Raise your hand if you've ever had your identity stolen. Anyone? Okay, so I'm not alone out there. Uh, my identity was stolen uh, shortly after I came to UBC, actually, which maybe that's not a coincidence. Um, I should have thought about that. But around seven years ago, and I found out because I got all these letters from banks literally all over the nation thanking me for opening a new account. And I'm like, I didn't do any of this. And it's kind of mind-blowing, again, to think that somebody can steal your identity. And, and be you, essentially, because of all these different forms. We also live in a world where you can create and generate your own identity because so much of our interactions today are digital, right? It's in a whole new arena where you can get on social media and you can curate your profile 
and make the world see you however you want them to see you. You can use filters on Instagram and Snap that, that show how people are going to view you and see you in all these different ways. AI technology allows you to even create fictitious pictures about who you are. You can actually create your identity, right? Think of all the different ways that we talk about this and engage in it. And, and if you think about the fact that we live in a society where you have to prove who you are, where people can steal who you are, where you can generate and create who you are, that has to impact on some way our ability to understand who we are, right? Essentially, that's the question we're trying to answer is, who am I, right? It's, it's actually a pretty profound question. It's a deep question, one that I think every human heart wrestles with at some point or another. Who am I? And how do I know? How do I define who I am? How do I understand who I am? Where do I get that information? It's, it's really kind of an existential question about existence as a whole. Why do I exist? What is my place in this world and the reason with which I interact with it? Right? These are pretty gripping questions. In fact, it was a question that gripped one particular philosopher uh, back in the 1600s. And I'm going to paraphrase his story. This is from bbc.com, and they have these great little uh, like short videos that talk about the history of ideas. And, and so I watched one of these that kind of summarizes the story. But this philosopher in the 1600s, French philosopher and uh, mathematician, was really consumed with the idea of what can I be certain of? Right? So think about a mathematician. Like, I, I want to be able to prove with absolute certainty certain things. And, and he started to uh, channel that question towards his existence. How can I be certain? How can I prove that I exist? And this is what's starting down this really random trail. So his first thought was, well, the senses, right? The five senses. I, I can see that I exist. I can feel, you know, my body. I, I can hear my voice. Like the senses show that, that I'm, I'm a real person, that I exist. And then he thought a little bit further. He goes, but you know what? Sometimes our senses can deceive us. Right? Sometimes I hear certain things, see certain things that aren't real, and so because my senses can deceive me from time to time, I don't know that I can actually be certain. I don't know that my senses are enough to prove my existence. And he took the thought a step further. He started thinking about dreams and the fact that he's had dreams before where he actually woke up in his dream. And he thought, well, if I woke up in my dream, then how do I know I'm not dreaming now? Like, can I prove to myself that this isn't a dream? Can I be certain of it, right? And, and so then he deviated a little bit away from uh, dreaming and existence. And he thought, well, math is certain, right? Because whether you're dreaming or whether it's reality, you can always prove that two plus three equals five. So I can always be certain about that. Then he really went off the rails. And he started thinking, but what if there was this divine creature, this being, this demon, this angel that was controlling my thoughts and manipulating my thoughts, deceiving me in such a way that every time I even did math, I was making an error and I didn't realize it. Maybe two plus three isn't five. Like, I mean, he was, he was in this uh, funnel, this, this, this swirling pool of, of never-ending doubt. And here's where he found sanity, right? What he began to realize was that even if there was this, like, divine creature, this demon, this being that was manipulating my thoughts, here's what I know. That the fact that I'm even thinking about that potential creature or thinking about math or thinking about dreams or thinking about my senses proves that I exist. Because if I didn't, then I wouldn't have any thoughts at all. And so he came up with this phrase, cogito erge sum, which is Latin for, I think, 
therefore I am. And so Rene Descartes comes up with this, this idea, right, that the way that you know who you are, the way that you can be certain you exist is by the way that you think, these thoughts within you, that you are a thinking being, and that has drastically shaped modern Western philosophy and thought. And he was building upon ideas that were already there, like Neoplatonic ideas, Platonic ideas that you could find with Augustine in the early two and three hundreds, where Augustine had that same sort of idea that there's this inner voice, this inner self, and that even built from Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and this, this kind of Western mindset. And, and that's a key theme here, is that when you think about it <clears throat> from a Western philosophical heritage, that's a pretty common way in which we have found a sense of identity, right? That there is this sense of thought, this, this idea, this inner voice, this conscience, this soul that exists within you. And that's who you are. And that seems to be pretty indicative of how we function in our world today. There is another article that was written by uh, <clears throat> Chris Niebauer, who was... Um, <clears throat> He's a, got a PhD in neuropsychology, and he wrote this article for a web platform called Big Think. And it was a, an article that was really accentuating different developments within the world of neuropsychology. It was, it was fairly interesting, but in that article, he started talking about the different ways that cultures have answered this, this question of sense of self. Right? Really what we're talking about is, again, existentialism. How do I exist? What is my sense of self? How do I get my identity from these things? And he made a pretty important distinction between Western thought and Eastern thought. Okay, so when I start talking about this inner voice and I start talking about this thinking, that, that tends to resonate with most of us because we're all mostly Western, right? And th this is the way it has infiltrated our society. So listen to how he describes it. He, he talks about it, actually, I don't have the quote, but he talks about it from the standpoint that the Western mindset is a pilot, Right, that you've got this inner voice, it's almost like this captain between your ears, behind your eyes, that, that governs everything that you do. It, it determines your, your actions, your movements, your thoughts, your conscience, your soul. That is the idea of your sense of self, right? This inner pilot within. He contrasts that to the Eastern mindset that is going to find its origins in Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, and other Eastern schools of thought. And what they're going to say, and what you typically find in Eastern culture, is that the idea of self is an illusion. That's very different than the idea of a pilot. But here's, here's the point. For them, the mindset is, the only time the self exists is when you think about it. But the moment you stop thinking about self or who you are, it, it no longer exists. It's an illusion. Right? You need to rid yourself of desire. You need to rid yourself of that sort of identity and become one with the world around you. And so if you think about that mindset contrasted to the Western mindset, these are very shaping ways in which we understand identity. For the West, it becomes very individualistic because I have this inner voice, I have this pilot. It's about self-actualization, self-fulfillment, self-gratification, all the things that I need. If you go to the Eastern mindset, identity is shaped more in a collective mindset where you actually try to rid yourself of that sort of individualistic mindset, and you're thinking about the group. You're thinking about the whole, and it doesn't matter because you're all part of the one all soul. You're all part of the one uh, enlightenment or nirvana, and you're just trying to once again kind of merge back into that, and so it's more about the group. And, and if you think about that, both of those have drastic implications on your understanding of identity. 
of your ability to answer that question, who am I, why do I exist, how do I find meaning, how do I react to the world around me, right? And so here's the reason I go into great detail on that today. I want us to ask, why do we wrestle with that? Like, why do we even ask the question of who am I? And why do we look throughout philosophy and history and see such a broad spectrum of solutions, suggestions, ideas, and why is it so difficult to grasp? That's what I want us to figure out for a little bit today as an introduction. So to do that, we're gonna turn to another philosopher that we find in scripture, okay? Turn to Romans chapter one, I'm kidding. I like to do that every time I finish a long series. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter one, okay? Uh, now, Ecclesiastes, the philosopher that we're turning to today is Solomon. And some people would argue whether or not Solomon actually wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And part of that is because the Hebrew language that is used here for this book is, is actually pretty, pretty old, or it seems to be from a later time period, and so some question that. But there's a lot of textual evidence within the book itself that points to Solomon. For example, chapter 1, verse 1, I'll go ahead and read it to you. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. All right, so teacher... Is, is how this uh, author typically refers to himself. And you can see the, the description there, son of David, king in Jerusalem, that tends to fit Solomon. That's an important part because when you read Ecclesiastes, this is arguably one of the more puzzling books that you have in the entire canon of scripture uh, because it is filled with passages that are pretty discouraging, disheartening, confusing. And, and there are a lot of times where people go, why is this even in the Bible, one of the reasons it tends to be widely accepted as its place in Scripture is because of Solomon authorship, uh, but also because of what you see, not just in these moments, but in the whole. And that's an important way to, to read Ecclesiastes. This is just for our introduction today. We're not going to be studying it for the next several weeks. It's just introductory. But in case you ever did sit down to read it, you've got to understand the framework, right? How the author begins and ends. The conclusion is very important to understanding the entirety of the letter. So we're gonna look at the framework today, um, and what we're gonna discover is that Solomon is essentially uh, wrestling with this same question of identity. It, it's really an existential work. It's him going, I don't understand this world and my place within it. I'm trying to figure out who I am in the midst of all this and my response to it. And, and so we're gonna look at the framework to see how he wrestles with it, and then at the very end, we'll conclude with why He's asked this question, why all of us ask this question. So we're going to start with chapter 1, um, and then the next few verses are, are pretty short. So follow along with me in verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear is full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. Oh, it was already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, 
was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. And I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. And then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Be dismissed, be encouraged. Um, I mean, like... It's, it's a very complex and heavy book. And, and chapter one sets the tone for almost everything you read. Now, there are snippets of, of really encouraging moments that you have to grasp onto, but the framework is really important, but you get a sense already from the very beginning, what is the author saying? Meaningless. Everything is utterly meaningless. Now, what does he mean by that? Uh, the word that's used here is, is in the Hebrew word hevel. Carmen Joy Imes has written a book called Being God's Image, and she talks about the translation of this opening verse here. And when you look at the Hebrew word hevel, it's essentially hevel, hevel, everything is hevel, utterly hevelim, right? I mean, that's, that's over and over again, this is the word. And what it can be translated as is breath, vapor, or vanity, right, or meaninglessness, and what, what Carmen Joy Imes is going to argue is that the, the English translation that says meaningless can kind of miss the mark and, and can kind of confuse what she would argue is the author's point. Because what we don't want to necessarily hear is that everything truly means nothing, right? That, that doesn't seem to resonate with the gospel. That doesn't seem to resonate with the truth of Scripture. Um, and so what is the author really trying to say? What she would argue is to translate it as vapor, vapor vapor, everything is utterly vaporous, that, that sort of translation. And the reason she would argue for that is because it would make the reader wrestle, right? It doesn't, it doesn't land the same way, so you'd be thinking, well, what does the author mean by vapor? And her point is to say that it is incredibly difficult for you and I, for humanity, to grasp a true understanding of meaning, right? To really understand it, to find it significant. It's like, it's like trying to grasp it breath or vapor. It's a chasing after the wind. This is a very difficult, confusing search. And so that's how she would argue, and that really is the theme that, that the author sets out. And you get a, get a glimpse of it there in chapter one. Look at all the things that Solomon or the teacher references. He, he turns to nature, right? The sun, the wind, the streams. He, he turns to generations that come and go, what the eye can see, but it never gets its fill. The ear never gets its fill, like the, the sensations that we have. All of it seems to, to end up empty. Even the pursuit of wisdom itself. He says, I applied all these things to understanding, to madness, to folly, and all of it felt like a chasing after the wind. Right? And so the argument here throughout Ecclesiastes is it's really difficult to understand meaning and significance to your life. To answer that question, who am I and why am I here? It feels like you're grasping at breath. Um, there's an author, J. Stafford Wright, who's written a commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, and he, he offers a good perspective of what we see here in chapter one. He says, the earthbound man became frustrated, and this book demonstrates that there is no firm foundation under the sun for earthbound man to build on so as to find meaning, satisfaction, 
and the key to existence. The teacher has confronted us with a situation that today might be called existential. Man exists in a series of experiences and cannot discover any onward meaning in them. Right, and so that's the idea. Solomon has asked this existential question, where do I find meaning, where do I find significance, how does this shape my understanding of who I am? I can't find it anywhere in earth. Right continues, where does, where does one start to build a way of life that transcends the meaninglessness of the world? Can purpose for life be found in nature, money, self-indulgence, property, position, intelligence, philosophy, and religious observances, they all encounter the same crowning frustration that invalidates them as solutions to the problem of living. And that's really what happens in the subsequent chapters. Solomon walks us through all these things that he's done, all these things that he's experienced, whether it was the acquisition of wealth or, or power or lands, whatever it is, everything ends up meaningless. He searched the world over and he can't find it. It's a chasing after the wind. And I think it resonates with us to a certain extent, doesn't it? Right? Our, our sense to understand existence in all the different ways that we try to find it and shape our identity around it, and yet doesn't it feel at the end of the day is something that's somewhat meaningless, chasing after the wind? And so how do we make sense of it? Well, the framework is very important. So after Solomon walks through all these different pursuits, you get to chapter 12, flip over to chapter 12, and let's see the conclusion of the matter. And this, again, is important for you to understand how to read the whole book. Picking up in verse 13. He says, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And so here's the result for the teacher, for Solomon, right? Is that when I look across the world, when I look across the earth, I find nothing. And so if I'm going to understand my existence and my identity and my place within it, I'm not going to look around the world. I'm going to look above. And so the teacher has a true understanding of God, his existence, believes in God, and ultimately says there's going to be a day where we have to give an account for our life, all that was good, all that was evil. And so embrace your current circumstances, knowing that he's there. Even find joy in those circumstances. Eat, drink, be merry. Like those are elements of Ecclesiastes. But, but here's the main takeaway, okay? Is that essentially Ecclesiastes is a philosophical book. One of the reasons it's so puzzling, one of the reasons we struggle with it to the extent that we do is because it's not your typical book that has this divine revelation about God's power or his miracles or the covenant. Right? It's not explicitly pointing to the gospel, though there are gospel elements within it. We're going to get to one here in just a second. Right? But, but it's, it's more philosophical. And here's the, the basic premise, right? is that you can go through life and you have really two choices to find meaning and significance, two options to answer that question, who am I? It can be either a self-centered or earth-centered approach or a God-centered one. And that's it. And if you choose the self, no matter where it takes you, your career, your family, whatever it is, it's going to feel meaningless. But if you turn your eyes towards God, towards the creator, that's where you're going to find meaning. That's where you're going to find contentment. So it's a really important framework. And to see how he works this existential question out through Ecclesiastes is, is really fascinating. Now, here's how I'm going to close this today. 
I want to go back to that question I said to you at the beginning. I, I want us to wrestle with why. Why do any of us ask this question? Why did Solomon ask it? Why did Descartes ask it? Why, why do we ask this question, who am I? Why do we struggle with finding meaning and significance in existence? Where does it come from? And why is it so broad in our pursuit of those answers? Flip back over to Ecclesiastes 3. At the beginning of Ecclesiastes 3 is, is a pretty well-known passage. It's probably one of the more well-known passages for this book. And you see that, that kind of poetic reference to all these different times and seasons for things. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, time to uproot. It's, it's very beautiful. It's very poetic. Be a great song. Somebody wants to go out there and write it. Um, but here's what I love. Verse 10 and 11. He says, I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. Right? Understanding meaning, asking this question, finding significance, it's a burden. Right? Trying to make sense of this broken world and who we, it, it is not easy. There is a burden that rests upon mankind that God has laid on us. And that's why he's, he's seeking, he's searching. All of us are seeking and searching. Right? It's that that question that you ask yourself at some point or another, who am I? How do I make sense of this world? And so he recognizes this burden, and then look at what he says in verse 11. He's made everything beautiful in its time. And he has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. That's it. That's your answer. That's why everyone wrestles with this question, because let's, let's think about it for a moment, church. Okay, let's think about this. What we all know is that where we find meaning and where we find significance, you know this instinctively and you give your life to it, is that we equate meaning and significance to something that lasts, right? That's why you give yourself to your career, your job, right? You, you wanna do enough so that you can find something that's going to last, whether that's even just enough money to last your life, to get you into retirement, to maybe even hand it over to your kids in the next generation. I need something that's going to sustain. I need something that's enduring. And if we're really ambitious, we start to get into these ideas, but wouldn't it even be great if in my career or in my achievements, I could find something that outlives me? Like I could create that next big thing, whatever it is, and I could, I could leave my mark on the world and maybe future generations might study me and the contributions that I made. That's where I'll find meaning is something that lasts. This is why we care about our families, right? Like, like that's why we invest in our kids because we think if they can just have a memory of me after I'm gone, then maybe my life meant something. It goes beyond me. Even if they don't always remember all the details, if they learn those lessons and these values, then, then my life meant something. It lasts. It endures. This is what we constantly equate to meaning. We're looking for something that endures. And where we get frustrated is that you and I live in a world and live as creatures where nothing lasts. Everything comes to an end. Everything you point to, yourself, your career, your money, your kids, like, like he says it, couple generations, you're not going to be known. Nothing lasts. And that's incredibly frustrating for the heart. 
Because that's where you know meaning is found, something that endures. And you're chasing after it. You're seeking to find it. And everywhere you turn in this life and in this world, it ends up empty. And so the question is, why are you looking for something that lasts? Where does that come from? See, what Descartes would say is that this is a pretty fascinating concept to take a finite being surrounded in a finite world and somehow they have the concept of eternity. Somehow they can imagine and anticipate something that is everlasting. How is that possible? Where do we get that idea when ourselves and everything around us ends and is temporary? And what Descartes would say is the only way you can have a sense of the eternal and the everlasting is if it was given to you if it was put within you by something or someone that is eternal. And this is where we begin to enter into a very critical biblical foundation of our identity. Because what the scriptures teach is that when you were given life, when you were formed in your mother's womb, When male and female were created, they were created in the image of he who is eternal. You carry his image. His imprint is upon you. And that's why eternity is set in your hearts and you're looking for it because you're looking for your creator. And so for the next several weeks, what we're going to talk about is what does it mean to be made in the image of God and how drastically and profoundly that impacts our understanding of who we are and our place within this world. And and here's the benefit for you and me as we, we close is that Solomon says here, we can't fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And in a way he's, he's right. It is a mystery, but you and I have an advantage that he didn't have because we live on this side of the cross. And because we live on this side of the cross, we see a little bit more clearly, though it does remain a mystery, exactly how God is going to lead us into the thing that our heart longs for. Right? What you and I know because of this gospel is that God is going to take a day where that which is meaningless becomes meaningful. Right? Where that which is finite becomes infinite. There will be a day when that which is temporary becomes eternal a day when that which is perishable is clothed in the imperishable. That which is weak is clothed in power. That which is dishonorable is sown into glory. That which dies is ushered into everlasting life. And how do we get there, church? But through Jesus Christ. He is the one that gives you what your heart longs for as you takes you into the glory of eternity. And I assure you, that journey and that day is absolutely beautiful. And that's where we find our sense of who we are. And so for the rest of this morning and for the next few weeks, my invitation is let's come and behold him who has set eternity in the hearts of mankind. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we are so 
grateful for who you are. So grateful for what you've done. So grateful for the way that you lead us. And we ask, God, that as we wrestle with this question of who we are and our understanding of existence and our place in this world, that our anchor would be found in you, that we would see ourselves as image bearers. And what a gift that is to have your imprint upon our hearts and the, the drastic implications of that reality. May we, may we cherish that. May we, may we reflect upon it in a way that helps us no longer chase after the things of this world, but chase after you. Help us to behold the mystery of the gospel that ushers us into the everlasting. We love you, Father, and we pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.